0: Welcome to Broken Law, the podcast about the law whose interests it serves and whose it does not. Brought to you by the American Constitution Society, a 501c3 nonpartisan nonprofit organization. I'm Jeannie Hireska, Senior Advisor for Communications and Strategy at ACS. Two years ago, George Floyd was murdered by Derek Chauvin, a Minneapolis police officer who knelt on Mr. Floyd's neck for nearly 10 minutes over a $20 bill. Mr. Floyd's murder, caught on camera and viewed the world over, inspired a national and even a global movement for police reform and racial justice. Today, we look back over the past two years and discuss what's changed, or perhaps the more telling question, what hasn't? And what do we do from here? I'm joined today by A.L. Brown, criminal defense attorney in Minneapolis, St. Paul. He has consistently spoken out about the need for changes to police policy. And I especially wanted to talk to A.L. because he's also called upon the legal profession to change certain practices that prey upon racial stereotypes. He wrote an article about this in the fall of 2020 ahead of the Chauvin trial entitled A Statement Against the Criminalization of Black and Brown Victims. We'll link to his article and to the ACS Minneapolis St. Paul Chapter Program at which A.L. spoke further about the need to change how we think about policing. A.L., welcome to Broken Law.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be with you.
0: Thanks. I'm excited for this conversation, even though it's about a less than an inspirational topic at times. But just to start off with, can you talk to me about your work? What are the majority of your cases
1: like? Well, I do quite a hodgepodge of work criminal, state and federal, civil, state and federal, uh, 1983 work, civil rights work, and health privacy, just things that interest me and things that keep me fed. So between those two uh, criteria, I can find myself quite busy.
0: Keeps the work interesting. Yeah. So you're you're in the Twin Cities. I want to take us back two years. What were your initial reactions, both to the murder of George Floyd and to the video? Because this is one of those instances where the video really went
1: viral so quickly. I think it was the first time in my life I ever asked for a trigger warning. I had a a friend of mine, a colleague who who said to me, hey, have you seen this video? And he just kind of sent it to my text. And I, without any warning about what it was, and I looked at it and I was just horrified watching a man be murdered just on film. It was the first time that I really kind of paid attention to the trauma that can come from Mm -hmm. seeing and being a part of a community that could give life to that kind of death, you know? It was horrific. And I still to date try to avoid seeing it.
0: Do you have that? And that must be a reoccurring experience because George Floyd obviously has been followed, unfortunately, by more police killings, including in the Twin Cities.
1: Yeah. You know who I think about more so uh, than myself in that instance, every time there's a police killing, I think of Valerie Castile, who is the mother of Philando Castile. And it's much like with the school shootings that we see now. Every time you see one, it must shake the souls of the parents of Columbine. And you can go from instance to instance in this country where this has happened. I think about Miss Castile. I don't know her from a, you know, yeah. a paper bag. I, I don't know if I have ever been in a room with her, but I think she must just be broken all over again.
0: You mentioned Columbine and I've, I've had that same thought in the last week that it feels very similar to what happens with school shootings where it, it digs back up everything that has happened in the past. It's like a montage that plays out in your mind. You see all of the the things that have come before. And I'm curious in your experience It also then compounds the frustration because it feels so often like we're having the same conversation every time.
1: Right. Well, that's because we are having the same conversation every time. And the problems with policing, and there are problems with policing, seem to be perennials. (laughs) You know, you you look at the death of uh, George Floyd and while he, before the verdict can get back in the murder trial of mr chauvin there's the death of dante Wright, Mm -hmm. and then you think okay maybe they've you know figured out how to cool it down and then there's the death of the next person and the next person until the we're, we're at the point where the names keep coming and the solutions don't
0: and again it feels like the situations with school shootings where the policy reforms are known like we can all almost recite the kind of list of things that we would like to see change. Yeah. And yet none of them get implemented.
1: You know, you know, I I used to blame politicians for that. I've shifted it. It's really on the people. We're responsible for this. We create this space. We allow politicians to just lie to us locally, state, federal. They just lie to us. And we just say, okay, so are you of thinking, of like, we, party, we keep
0: re-electing them of, like, we, we, we keep, get the false promise and we're like, oh, that's okay, we'll elect you again.
1: Yeah, between the gerrymandering, yeah, between the partisanship, where it doesn't matter if the person has a good idea, uh, if they are of a party you don't identify with and you therefore just discard them as a whole being, we, we just suck at <laughs> democracy, frankly, yes. yeah. because what, to the extent you care about this framework, this lens... What the founders imagined, and it's not necessarily a framework I embrace, was an informed, educated, non you know, populist, and that, that just simply doesn't exist in America. Yeah. So, but we're responsible for it. We're responsible for policing that can get out of control. We are responsible for school shootings. And I think it's time we stop pushing it off on politicians who keep getting reelected when, when when we have some serious obligation.
0: I will just know, I do think, and this is my soapbox, I do think some blame goes to the Supreme Court as well. You mentioned gerrymandering, voter suppression. The, one of the reasons we have elections turning out the way that they are is the, the laws that the Supreme Court has handed down, or oh, the yeah. precedents. So I do think voters are being increasingly kneecapped by this court when it comes to trying to change their elected officials at times. But that is a different conversation.
1: Well, maybe because I agree with you in part, the Supreme Court has been decidedly unhelpful and hell-bent on going that direction. But we have a method and means in our constitution to change the constitution. And we just we you know we don't do it. We, yeah. we act like it's a legal impossibility to amend the constitution. The second amendment, there's been amendments to the constitution. It you know, the bill of rights are amendments to the constitution, right? So there are ways to change it, but it requires political, personal, moral yeah. will, courage, energy, time. And the and the reality is, to your point, we ain't got it. Yeah. And it doesn't look like we're going to be getting it anytime soon. And so we use the, the most common venues or the most common means of change, which is litigation Yep. and bribery through campaign donations. That's America.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Corruption. It can hmm. feel like at times. I do want to talk about the reforms we would like to see, because there has there has been some progress around the margins and one of the considerations here is where that progress has come from. Mm-hmm. But in in the immediate wake of George Floyd's murder, and there was the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, right? I mean, an unprecedented movement in the modern era. What were the reforms that you were hoping to see?
1: I think if we can't have a serious discussion about qualified immunity, then we're just we're, we're throwing paper to the wind. Until law enforcement, qualified immunity is one. Until law enforcement has skin in the game. And in Minnesota, it's not often that they actually have to pay any damages. And for those who don't know, qualified immunity is essentially a doctrine that permits accountability in civil lawsuits only for the absolute worst of cops. And so a lot of the abuses and the um, terrible language and uh, the... Excessive force oftentimes gets washed away through qualified immunity,
0: which we should say was created by the courts.
1: Terribly so. And you can see Justice Sotomayor Mm -hmm. in her many dissents about can we at least just take a case that tells the people, the police officers, what is unacceptable? Because every case we take says that's okay. So I think we definitely need to take a very serious look at qualified immunity. I think there, there ought to be reforms that require peace officers to do what they ask so many people in my community or communities that look like me to do, snitch. Yeah. And what is what is profoundly disturbing about Mr. Floyd's murder is when you hear the initial reports from the police department about a medical emergency and the media that just took that and ran with it it's it, 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 it has done one good thing it has at least told the media to stop reading police reports and criminal complaints as though they are fact
0: that is uh, such an important point to make yeah.
1: i I think that the media has just gone flat lazy and and, and I don't you know take the school shooting instance in Texas, they did it again. Uh, The police come out and they say, hey, we had officers present and, uh, you know, they confronted only to find out it wasn't true.
0: Yeah, we've had so many corrections of the record just in the past week when it comes to Evaldi.
1: But the thing about liars is they know when they're lying. It doesn't surprise them. And so why isn't there some accountability for peace officers who get together and get their story together, who cover for each other? If I helped him, you know, as a criminal defense attorney, if I helped a client, pretend I'm not a lawyer, that might be best for all. But if I helped someone get away with a crime, I'm considered part of the criminal act. But for peace officers who lie routinely from the, you know, he had a gun to he was resisting, you know, you Routinely, there's no accountability for that. That needs to change yesterday.
0: You have mentioned that in one of the programs before. And I I thought that was a really interesting litmus test for how to measure progress. And you said Mm -hmm. progress would be when police snitch on each other.
1: No.
0: Because like you've noted, your clients are asked to snitch all the time by police.
1: And not only asked, but berated for not doing so. and, and not taken into context i you know i had a a, a kid once who was prepared to uh be a, an informant and i said you know he's really concerned about his safety and the government really wanted him to testify so they just gave him immunity i said but what about after he's done testifying he's got to go back to the neighborhoods and, and he's got to you know y- your immunity keeps him out of jail it doesn't keep him out of the grave and so i think when you when you talk about snitching within police departments what you're really talking about is a culture change where you can say hey that's not cool that's not acceptable that's not how we do it and you are an outlier
0: i want to ask a, a question about that because we are seeing states mandate reporting through legislation and trying to force this type of change that you're talking about but i wonder that is sufficient or whether what you're really looking for is for police departments to internalize this and to take it upon themselves to change. So it's, it's not that the legislature is ordering them to do this. It's that they actually think this is what's right is to self-report.
1: You know, I, I think a, uh, change of heart would be ideal. Yeah. But in the meantime, uh, I'd like to see black lives protected. I'd like to see poor lives protected. I'd like to see poor white people protected. I'd like to see everyone get home safely. And it would not be out of the ordinary. We have mandatory reporters in various facets of our life. We require teachers to report bruising. We require doctors to report gunshot wounds. There are plenty of people who are obligated. Including lawyers in certain situations. Yeah, to get involved. When you when it's when it's ordinarily none of your business or when it's not necessarily to your convenience, there are plenty of places. Yeah, I I would love to persuade law enforcement to see the humanity in the people that they police. I don't have time to wait.
0: Yeah. Legislation Um, comes first and then the culture follows. Yeah. I want to go back to qualified immunity that you brought up. Um, Because this this consideration actually came up on a previous episode of like, what's the what's the disease? What's the symptom? Mm -hmm. I'm interested in your perspective on if you could fix qualified immunity and make it so that police were more readily held accountable. Do you think some of the other reforms that people talk about would fall in place from that starting point?
1: Well, I, I can take a conservative view on this and say, if you get rid of qualified immunity, if I'm a peace officer and I know I'm going out there on the streets and someone may sue me, they might hire A.L. Brown, say I use excessive force. I don't want to lose my house. And assuming that the city won't pay the bill, which is what happens and what happened in Mr. Floyd's case is what happens in just about every case, at least in Minnesota, the employer pays the bill. So in some ways, it's really just a way of denying the citizen a forum to talk about their case or to get justice. It's not really protecting the cop from paying the tab because in reality they never pay the tab. Correct. But having said that, if I'm a cop and I and I've got and I'm from a town that's just terrible and they they won't pay if I'm out here doing this dangerous job and they won't cover me financially, I might seek insurance. And what Insurance companies have a a way of doing is putting seatbelts in cars, airbags in cars.
0: Minimizing liability.
1: Minimizing liability, changing the way you do things so that they don't have to pay for your mistakes. I think that would be a natural outgrowth of reducing the, the the strength and the potency of qualified immunity, which is just flatly out of control. I mean, when you when you say, oh, what happened was surely unconstitutional if you can get the court to say that because they often start the analysis with uh, qualified immunity as opposed to and, and it's not good enough that it's clearly wrong it has to be so wrong right you know? and we can't talk about a case that's uh on point um, unless it's exactly like we, we've got cases where the cop where we told cops you can't shoot people in the back but we never told them they couldn't shoot them in the front right you know the the foolishness of qualified immunity
0: and well, how the Supreme Court consistently gives the police the benefit of the doubt.
1: But beyond that, it it is, it is as though the Ninth Circuit keeps trying yep. to, and the Supreme Court keeps saying, No, we really meant in in opinions that are not even necessarily, uh, I don't think they always grant oral arguments. Sometimes it's just a summary disposition. This is wrong. This was not clearly established. Well, how about you at least establish? I can't remember the name of the case right now, but there was a case that came, I think it's Sawyer maybe, Saucier. I can't remember, but you got smart people, That, that essentially said that you can take the qualified immunity analysis first. So- for your listeners, you have to first establish that there was a constitutional violation under Section 1983. And then the next step would be to say, well, was the cop on fair notice that this would be unreasonable under the law? And that's, of course, been heightened and strengthened and made an absolute chill in just about most all cases for police accountability. At some point, I think it was in the early 2000s, the Supreme Court says, well, you can just start with the qualified immunity. And so here's the effect of that. You end up with cases where they say, we don't even have to decide if it was unconstitutional. We can just say that it wasn't clearly established and therefore this cop's not liable. The result of it is the cop keeps doing what is clearly wrong. And if he gets caught again, it's the same problem because the court has never declared the act itself unconstitutional. If we can't get serious qualified immunity reform. At the bare minimum, we can get the establishment of constitutional rights in these decisions made more plainly, even if it lets that cop off. It should put the next cop on notice.
0: I want to touch upon the Derek Chauvin trial because it is one of the few instances where an officer was held accountable. You've commented uh, about this trial. What's your reaction to it, to the trial itself and to the conviction?
1: I think the, the trial team for the state did a, a fantastic job overall. I've been critical of some aspects of the, the trial, but trial is tough. It's tough on the prosecutors, tough on the defense attorneys, tough on the judge. It's a very difficult space to be in. And a high stakes trial like this, all the more. You know, my, some of my initial impressions were Hennepin County is really putting on a show there has never been this many resources dedicated to the prosecution of one individual. And what I want people to know is that that's not everyday justice. That's the, the, the defense that Mr. Chauvin had. It's not the public defenders that handle a great deal of the, the great majority of cases that go through uh, that County. They do excellent work. I certainly don't mean to say anything to besmirch their reputation, but they're overworked, underpaid,
0: under resourced,
1: under resourced, talked too poorly by the judges, the prosecutors, and the clients. It's a space where you really have to either really love yourself or hate yourself to take the job uh, because nobody likes you. Everybody hates you. You're the biggest problem in the room, and you're really just there to hold the government accountable to their burden. It was the first time that we had video in a courtroom so that the public can see. I, I think that that's long overdue the public needs to see how these judges behave in courtrooms. The public needs to see the actual evidence so they can make their own decisions. Other states have done it forever. I mean, I remember watching the OJ Simpson trial, Mm -hmm. readily available. Why it's not more common is a mystery to me. And maybe that that space is going away. That's one of the benefits of the pandemic. There was also this recurring theme. And I wrote an op-ed for a series of minority bar associations here in the Twin Cities. Please stop prosecuting the deceased. You know, please stop spitting on the graves of people who died at the hands of police. You don't have to be an angel to get home safely. It's not comply or die. You know, this is what's wrong with the American psyche about policing. That if you don't comply, the police have every right to use whatever force they deem necessary to gain compliance. And that just doesn't work. That's not an attitude that is adopted by communities, wealthier communities. I've seen so many, so many white people look at police and tell them go straight to hell. Do not pass go.
0: Look at January 6th.
1: (laughs) You know, it's it. It, 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 but, but to this date, they're, they're still working their best to make George Floyd out to be a monster. Even after the conviction of Mr. Chauvin on the two-year anniversary.
0: Oh, Twitter was absolutely grotesque. Yeah, the comments. Yeah.
1: We're referring to, you know, St. George. You no, know, He doesn't have to be a saint. You know, like, yeah. what, what, is, what, what is that notion that Black has to be... You know what it have is? Have to be
0: angels it's, to it's, survive.
1: It's, it's deep. You know, it's, it's, the, it's, it's the talk that just about every Black parent who's conscious of the world they live in gives to their child, particularly their Black son. You know, yes, sir, no, sir. Hands on the wheel. That kind of deal. We'll deal with it when yeah. you get home. It, it teaches a lesser that, And I'm just, I'm not okay with it. I, I, I don't buy into the idea that you have to be perfect. We're, we're
0: going to link to your op-ed and I'm, I'm really glad you brought it up because you actually call on lawyers yeah. to help change this. And for, like you said, very few trials get aired. Very, you know, if you're a, a member of the public, you don't get to see many criminal trials. And so for folks who aren't accustomed to kind of the practices and what goes on, can you talk about what this looks like, this criminalization of victims?
1: Yeah. Well, George Floyd was killed by Officer Chauvin. We watched it on video, filmed by a little girl, who has to live with that. Who has to live with having seen that? You don't ever get to trust the cops after that again. So we saw what happened to Mister Floyd, and there was nothing. There was nothing that his criminal history, his previous acts, had done to warrant that. He's been arrested over twenty dollars, man. you know, come on, yeah, you know you got you got three cops out there, four cops out there, over twenty dollars
0: and then during the trial, the defense wanted to talk about
1: was that a pill under his tongue? Was yeah. he selling drugs? Listen, why don't we just shoot all drug dealers? I mean why why do let's dispense with the pretense that we have a justice system that requires due process. I can guarantee you this. They would not take that attitude if this were happening in in an affluent white area of America. And you know frankly I'm sick of not calling out the racism about mm-hmm. it. Make white people feel comfortable about it.
0: Oh this is this is racial stereotyping at the absolute worst that because George Floyd Had had a a history with drugs that he was lesser than that. It warranted the police violence that Chauvin had some justification for doing what he was doing. It is the worst of the worst.
1: And and I can imagine that they could come up with just about every forgiving scenario for a white drug addict. Oh, I'm sure she must have hurt her back and got addicted to oxycodone and those damn drug manufacturers pushing all these drugs in the community. But when it comes to people of color, black folks in particular, it's a lack of discipline. It's a moral failing. When white America fails, it's systematic. Mm -hmm. Whether you're talking about farming, the farming's been in a terrible space for decades. Whether you talk about the meth outbreak. Gun violence. Gun violence. It's systematic. When black people fail, it's a moral failing. It's a lack of discipline. It's a self, it's, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Look at, look at all we gave you mm-hmm. all this opportunity. Yep. And I just think that that type of defense, I'm not saying that the def- defense attorneys, and I certainly don't have to ignore relevant evidence that goes to guilt or innocence,
0: relevant
1: evidence, though. relevant evidence. And you know, who else is responsible for this? The bigoted judges who let it in. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, prosecutors and defense attorneys will do anything if you permit them. But the judges are responsible to say, tell me, tell me, tell me again, Mr. Brown, exactly why you want to bring up the length of her skirt. Remind me.
0: Yeah. So that's the thing, right? Like we have addressed this to a certain extent when it comes to rape victims and victims of, of sexual assault. There are laws about what you can and cannot bring up about a victim's history, why don't we have something like that in situations like this?
1: Because it hasn't happened to enough white people.
0: Final and that's the damning truth.
1: Final answer. When- so you
0: you call upon the legal profession and we are, we're ACS, we're a legal organization. So I I really want to take this opportunity for you to make the request that you made in the op-ed here on the podcast, that lawyers need to take this into their own hands and change what they do. Talk to me about that.
1: Yeah. You, you know, listen, I I think my reputation is I'm a pretty aggressive litigator. I really don't pull many punches. I'm in it for my client. But I was born a human, not a lawyer. And so decency, you know, you, you I've defended people who've been charged with murder. I've been to the morgue and I've seen the pictures and the bodies. I've seen the family sobbing in the hallway and I've seen my guy, you know, girl be acquitted or get a deal that the family didn't want. I've, I've seen that. I've never once thought that the deceased was my enemy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The evidence is what I'm working with, and evidence that helps demonstrate that my client is not guilty or that the state has not, or the federal government hasn't met its burden of proof. There is a way to approach lawyering that we have somewhere lost in the need to make money or billable hours or whatever it is just says, you know, I'm an animal. I'm a, I'm a, I'm an SOB. They're all lying. You know, what are you doing? Like at, at at what point did you decide that the deceased is just a pawn in the game? I think, I think better lawyers, I think the better path to lawyering is to acknowledge the humanity and the loss, but to, to make plain that your client may not be responsible for it and you can do that without degrading humanity but you first have to see the person is human mm-hmm. i mean in order for any of that to work you've got to you've got to see that they, you know they didn't just pop up on the planet we don't grow humans they come from two people and at some point they were the hope of dream you, know, you see a baby walking down the street white baby, black baby, Asian baby. No one has hate toward that child. There's something precious about it. Just imagine people as children.
0: And as a lawyer, you can, you can change what you do without being ordered to do it. Yeah. Right. We, we can seek legislation and we should absolutely, but it's also upon the legal profession to undergo self-initiated
1: reform. Yeah, but I'll tell you why they why many lawyers do it because it works because yeah, people, oh absolutely. The, 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 the juries are made up of people who say yep. you know, who ask the question. Well, I would never be out that late at night. Yeah. <laughs> well, why don't you? Yeah. I I, I would have if, if if I would have just shown him my ID, assuming yep. that you have an ID, right? I would have just went and stayed somewhere else that night, assuming you have some other place to go. Right. So if people do it because Sometimes it works, but I hope that the I hope that the public reacquaints itself with decency. And frankly, I you know, I there is some value in shame and we've become a shameless society. Absolutely shameless. I'm going to lie to you and tell you I'm lying to you and then ask you to give me money so that I can continue to lie to you about things that are important to you. Absolutely shameless as a society we ought to reacquaint ourselves with decency and shame.
0: You're listening to Broken Law, brought to you by the American Constitution Society. This June, ACS members will be gathering for our annual national convention in Washington, D.C. After two years of virtual conventions, we are thrilled to be reconvening in person on June 16th through the 18th. This is an opportunity for lawyers, students, scholars, advocates, judges, and ACS allies to come together to celebrate and advance the progressive legal movement. Learn more about our national convention and RSVP today by going to acslaw.org convention Again, that's acslaw.org backslash convention. We hope to see you there. And now back to the conversation. I want to talk about the comparison between the Chauvin trial and the trial for Kim Potter, right? Who who shot Amir Locke claiming that she confused her gun Dante for a razor.
1: I think that was Dante, yeah. right? Yeah.
0: You're right. I'm sorry. <clears throat> No charges were pressed against the officer who killed Amir Locke. No. But the Chauvin trial, there was a conviction, right? There was a a 22-year sentence. It felt like there was progress towards police accountability. And then very shortly thereafter.
1: Regina Chu is. uh, Is the judge. No, no.
0: Yeah. So Kim Potter gets sentenced to 24 months, you know, maybe half of which she'll serve. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And you had a really strong reaction to this, calling it a slap on the wrist.
1: Yeah. You know, I'm glad Judge Chu retired because I would have actively found someone to run against her. I I, I think what she did was so abhorrent. So, you know, a, a great part of me said, just give her probation. I just think the only thing that prohibited her from doing it were the optics. Kim Parter is going to do two thirds of your time here in the state of Minnesota. But you go through the work of getting a prosecution. You know what I found really, really powerful about that is what the family says. You have to listen to the family. You know, Mr. Wright was biracial, father present, mother present. Right. And so there goes your narrative about where was his dad? You know, I'm so sick of that. I see a lot of Black families intact. I see a lot of Black families where they're single parents. I see a lot of white families. But it's not this ubiquity of absent fathers, you know, that is often portrayed. But what the family said that just kind of spoke truth to powers, we thought we were hoping (laughs) that we were just white enough to escape this. And, you know, you know, the history of America is you have one drop of Black blood, you're Black. And you can have it if if you're a person out there with a with a biracial child, and you think that their green eyes or curly hair is yeah. going to save them, but you know, you, who you fooling?
0: Yeah, you talked uh, about, and and you're not the only one. A lot of people had this reaction, which is it it underscored the value of a black life, proving yeah. that the value is not that much.
1: Oh, she just made a terrible mistake. Yeah, it's a terrible mistake. Sorry that your son is dead. <laughs> you know, it's it's terrible. We have to we have to give her some accountability. So how does 24 months in prison sound?
0: That conviction changed your perspective on the chauvin conviction, where it, it makes it so the chauvin conviction wasn't actually turning the, the page.
1: No, you know what it did? It, it it actually sent me back to the conviction of Officer Noor, mm-hmm. who is the Minneapolis police officer who was Somali who shot Justine Damon and killed her who was a white woman I said at the time I want to see if this judge has the courage to grant a dispositional departure you see I'm I'm, I'm really of the mindset that either we level up or level down you know I don't yep. you know, whichever direction you want to move the lever yeah I want it on the level And a different judge, Judge Quaintance, denied the motion for uh, Officer Noor to get a a dispositional departure. And what that means in Minnesota is instead of going to prison, as the guidelines would suggest, you instead are placed on probation because there are attributes about you that would suggest this was a one-off and that you can live in a law-abiding society without committing these crimes. It's a safety valve of sorts. And if Officer North fit the category, so did, frankly, Kim Potter fit the category. But once Judge Quentin, not once, but twice, because Officer North's case went to the appellate courts and one of his charges was reversed. She twice sentenced him without regard for that. And so you're looking at the Somali community and they're thinking, well, what the hell? Yeah. You know how this white woman get this great deal. And why is this a Somali cop? So once Judge Quaintance, I, I thought Judge Chu could not. I, just, I could not imagine in the context of, right. of, of what's going on, both in policing, what's going on in prior sentences, grant such a lenient sentence. But she did. And she knew that it would be controversial. My understanding is that she sent the governor her retirement letter weeks before the sentencing date because she knew the ire it would draw and she still did it and you know and she did it in a way that just makes you what is wrong with you, you it know, was painful ha- to watch yeah it we was ha- really painful we need to have compassion for miss potter and, and then quote you know well, you know you listen <laughs> as a black person i know i'm in trouble when white people start quoting dr king and barack Obama. <laughs> yep it's not going to work out for me you know yep. They've, they've turned these people who are who are speaking directly to bigotry and hatred. And they've made them into Disney characters that just says, can't we all get along? They're, they're, you know, the Dr. King is the new Uncle Sam. You know, it's just a caricature of what he actually stood for. And so when she starts to quote Barack Obama and Dr. King, you know. It,
0: yeah, I do want to. Highlight a point you made though, following that conviction, which is that voters need to pay more attention to elected judges. Yeah. And that is such a critical point. It's an election year right now. I want to make sure that that point gets conveyed here. When we think of police reform, I think most people think of legislatures, they think of the federal government, they think of maybe their city council. But talk to me about the role that judges play in police
1: reform. Oh, it's huge. I mean, listen. I it, 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 if you ever find a traffic ticket where you just you you earnestly did not go through the red light, it was yellow, and therefore you had a right to proceed, and you get the ticket, and the judge says, "Well, I believe the cop." Uh, I'll just take a judge that will hold the state to its burden of proof. Al could be telling the truth. Officer Smith could be telling the truth. That's fifty-fifty. Tie goes to Al. You don't have to call the cop a liar. How about just having the decency to uphold the legal standard you swore you would? Well, why would this cop lie? Why do? Why does anyone lie? And so now it becomes your burden as the citizen to demonstrate why a peace officer. What we what we fail to realize is that law enforcement is a competitive enterprise. They wanna catch as many quote unquote bad guys as they want and many of them actually believe and they actually are catching some bad guys, right? But many of them actually believe even if they're dead wrong that they've got the right person and they'll they'll hold on to that. It's the judges who let searches go. You know, give you a graphic example, but it's necessary. Judges will allow cavity searches on the side of roads of black people. Oh, that wasn't against the Fourth Amendment. That was totally reasonable. I mean, the officers carried the gloves to to do these. The, the, just the the denaturing yeah. of black men as you know as subhuman,
0: and you've talked about the police, just their persistent need to touch black bodies,
1: control, yeah, to but they're doing it. I, I don't want to put it all on the police. Because they're doing it on the theory that they're protecting someone else. Right. That you, you, if you think about the thin blue line, which law enforcement often uses as a representation. Everything is fine on the wild side of the thin blue line. If you assume that you're on the other side, the thin blue line is there in theory to protect the civilized from the uncivilized. And there are plenty of white folk in America, Asian folk, Muslim. There are plenty of folk because of the history of this country and the history of slavery that believe that black folks are on the other side of that line and that they are presumed to be on the safe side of it. And these people grow up to be peace officers. White mothers are raising these boys, raising these women. They're not coming from nowhere. Right. And so the, the, the fear, the constant fear That's put out there about Black men, again, to George Floyd, being superhuman and supersized and, you know, capable of flipping over a car with excited delirium and all this other BS they make up about Black folk. Make it easier to have a need to touch and to use excessive force. And all I want is my humanity back. That's all I really want. I, mean, I don't I don't I don't I don't I, don't, I, don't, I don't want anybody to give me anything or or make my life easy. Just if you see me as a human, there is no way you can treat me the way you do.
0: You talked about judges kind of deferring to police and we had talked at the beginning about how the media, you know, takes a police report and assumes it's fact all the time. And so mm. part of the theme that I think we keep hitting is Part of police reform is taking away that deference, taking away the assumption that police are always in the right.
1: Yeah, they've done a good job of convincing us that it's a profession. And I don't know where I land on that. I don't know if policing is a profession or a vocation. I I honestly just don't, don't know. But we have civilian control over the military, but we don't have civilian control over local policing. Bill Clinton never served a day in the military, but he was able to send troops. Same for, I think, George W. Bush didn't serve either. Donald Trump certainly didn't serve anyone. Barack Obama, right? But they were each able to send million-dollar missiles into places. And if the military didn't like it, you could be fired. If If you showed a level of disrespect, you could be fired. I think President Obama fired one general for an expression of disrespect. But you can be held in contempt of cop. With the citizenry cheering, there's something wrong with us. America is afraid of each other. Americans are afraid of each other. And cops exploit that space and say, hey, listen, I'm the only thing that's keeping the animals back. And it let me just say this, and not out of any sense of pity, but just to speak the truth, it hurts. It hurts to be in a scan where people just look at you like you are an animal. It just sucks. Not saying I would trade being black for anything else. It's the only experience I know. But it, that's what it really comes down to. Americans are afraid of each other. They've been trained to think less black Americans. And they raise children who become police officers who execute that. I'm not letting anybody off the hook. The problem is us. We do this.
0: We could talk for hours, I think, and I would love to, because there's so much to this conversation, but I am mindful of time. Yeah. We we do end our episodes with a call to action. And I do want to make sure that we leave folks with a thought on what could happen next. What change do we want to see happen? How can people help? So for listeners who've heard this conversation, and want to take action, want to do something about the issues that we've discussed, what would you recommend they do?
1: I always say you have to start with yourself. You have to start with yourself and make sure that you work to eliminate the bias in you. Why, do you, why, why, don't, why can't your kids play with Johnny? Why don't you want to live in that neighborhood? What is the ghetto target? This, these are the common phrases of bigotry. Go to the ghetto target. Why is it ghetto? What do, you, what do you mean by that? Do they not sell soap? Can you not get fruit? Oh, that's where black people go. Oh, that's where poor people go. Start to work internally to kind of strip yourself of all of that nastiness. All of that nastiness, deep to teach yourself to see people as humans. Start there. And then insist on it from people around you. Mm-hmm. Spread your bubble yeah. of decency. Vote. The the absolute, you know, they, they <laughs> for all of the fecklessness that's been associated with voting, there are a lot of people who don't want me to vote.
0: And are so trying to pass laws to prevent you from voting.
1: To make sure that it's difficult. So there must be something to it. Vote. Uh, figure out, and this may be too sophisticated for uh, your ACS audience, but figure out who your elected officials are pay attention to local elections listen the school board fights that have blown up around the country i will say this about the right they have they they do an excellent job of creating issues and i do mean creating the issues that create voters and the left just kind of reacts become proactive but i really do and i don't i don't say it as a as an easy thing just start with yourself. Look at your kids. Yeah. Look at look at the friends that your kids have. You know why? Why, why do you want your kid to go to an all white school when in a world that's not all white? Why, it's why the
0: hardest you... thing I think at times is to is to change from within to change yourself. But yeah. it is it's where change starts.
1: Why do you go to a church? Yeah, place of worship. A synagogue where you can't see anybody that doesn't look like you. You're doing it to yourself. You're feeding yourself a diet of of white normalcy, which can easily have become white supremacy.
0: I think that is a powerful note on which to end. Al, thank you for your time, for your thoughts, and it it would be telling to have this conversation in a couple years, and I hope it's changed.
1: Sure, the police will give us the opportunity.
0: (laughs) It is the unfortunate, tragic truth. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks to our listeners for finding Broken Law. Help us reach more listeners by recommending Broken Law to a friend. And be sure to follow and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. If you have ideas for future episodes, let us know. You can email us at podcast at or find us on social media at ACS Law. Together, we'll speak truth to power about the law, whose interests it really serves and whose it does not.